everybody. Thank you for joining me for another episode of the Veterinary Anesthesia Nerds podcast, where we talk about nothing but veterinary anesthesia and pain management and maybe the occasional restaurant recommendation. Uh, We are joined today by a really cool guest, uh, not only a VTS in anesthesia, but also a fellow Spartan, Elizabeth Hart. So you guys, Elizabeth uh, has worn many hats in her career. She has been a technician supervisor. She has worked uh, in surgery and in internal medicine and in anesthesia. She is a VTS in anesthesia. She also has a bachelor's from Michigan State University. And fun fact, this is where it gets kind of weird, you guys. We graduated from Michigan State University with our bachelor's in science in the exact same year. We might have even walked in graduation (laughs) together and not even known it. So That's crazy. Welcome. (laughs) Thank you. Welcome to the podcast, Elizabeth. Thank you. Yeah, I'm reading uh, Elizabeth's bio, you guys, and uh, it's now, if you guys listen to the podcast, you know, um, I live in Philadelphia now, but my heart is still uh, on campus uh, in East Lansing, so go Spartans, go green all yeah. the time, definitely had a wonderful time in my experience there, Yeah, uh, and yeah, when I saw 2003, I was like, oh, hey, now, <laughs> We were there at the same time. That's so funny. And we probably even had classes in the same buildings because if you have a bachelor's in agribusiness, I would assume that you were in the ag building and maybe even natural resources. Yep. All the time. Yep. And so (laughs) my my bachelor's is in wildlife biometry. And so I was in the natural resources building all the time as well. So that's a really small world. And then we both ended up in Pennsylvania. As VTS is in anesthesia. So here we are. (laughs) (laughs) That's crazy. So Elizabeth, today we are going to talk on the podcast about geriatric feline patients. And this comes up a lot on the veterinary anesthesia nerds, like kind of on our message boards as to people. I mean, people are nervous about anesthesia as it is, right? Right. And then when you add in the fact that we have these geriatric felines and sometimes, you know, sometimes these animals will need anesthesia at like 16, 17 years old. Uh, and there's a lot of considerations that we need to take into account because we want to treat these guys a lot different than we would maybe their one to two year old counterparts. So I was hoping that we can start out today with you just giving us some guidelines as to, in your professional opinion, when you have a geriatric feline on the anesthesia or surgery schedule, what are some things that you want to know? What are some things you want to prep in advance? Just some general considerations or a checklist that our listeners can use when they see something similar on their schedule. Um, I mean, I think when you have a geriatric feline, you have to first assess them for heart disease. Do they have a murmur? Do they have a gallop? Um, you know, you want to see blood work. You want to see, do they have any kidney disease? Um, any, you know, you want to definitely get a thyroid on them, especially if they're a a skinny cat, you want to see that T4. Um, you know, and then the other consideration is if you can get blood pressures, are they, you know, hypertensive, anything like that. Um, but I think, you know, I do think that, a little bit, people make everything more complicated and they kind of focus on, oh my God, it's 17. But yes, but is it a 17-year-old healthy cat or is it a 17-year-old sick cat? You know, because um, I think there's a big difference. 
you know, I think having that baseline blood work is very important, you know, and if they people don't want to, you know, if they have a murmur and, you know, they don't want to work it up, then you have to kind of think in your mind, what's the most likely cause for this murmur? Is it most likely probably HCM? Like, do we have a component of that there? So, you know, I think it's very important to think of like, what's going to be the most likely things that this older cat has. And really, all in all, like, you know, it's not like, you treat everything so much differently. Like you can really kind of have a plan for an older cat and it doesn't need to vary too, too, too much, you know, depending on what's wrong with it. Certainly. Now you mentioned something about the thyroid and I think that is important to note, especially when these, these cats come in and you do have maybe like, you know, an old grumpy, skinny, you know, old man cat. We've all seen this who, uh, needs to have something done. Uh, most often it is like a blood pressure or an ultrasound or something and they're, they're not having it. Uh, when we talk about the thyroid, if we didn't have that information, or let's say we got that information, we had the animal on the schedule to have a procedure and we found out that in fact they were hyperthyroid and a little bit hypertensive. What are some things that we want to get under control before we do that anesthetic procedure? I mean, we definitely, if they are hyperthyroid, they need to be on hyper, on medications, methamazole for about two weeks prior to surgery. I mean, we do need to get that under control. Then we need to see if there's underlying kidney disease that the thyroid disease has been masking. So that is important that that's something that we treat before we go ahead with anesthesia. Um, you know, they are, if we don't treat it, then they're at risk for, hy- for a thyroid storm, which you know, that can be a pretty terrible thing to deal with, you know, tachyarrhythmias, hypertension, um, hyperthermia, it can lead to death. So that is something we definitely want to get under control before anesthesia. Yeah. And you also mentioned evaluating the cat for potential heart disease and Mm -hmm. hearing something called a gallop rhythm. Mm -hmm. So for those uh, of our maybe veterinary assistants or people just starting out, explain to us what we mean by gallop rhythm. So a gallop rhythm sounds, you know, the normal heartbeats like lub dub lub dub gallop is it's a distinct difference um you know i especially when i hear a cat that i think that has a distinct gallop i bring over like you know the people that haven't heard it as much and say you got to listen to this this is a distinct gallop rhythm um because i think it at first it's like it sounds you know and a lot of times people will just be like oh it sounds a little weird and you're like yep that's a gallop but it's like it definitely sounds like a horse galloping like you know so that's kind of what you're looking for there and murmurs in cats can be difficult because you're not escalting them the same way you escalt a dog. Like you want to you want to listen peristernally, not just on the sides of their chest, because you won't necessarily hear a murmur in a cat if you're just listening to the sides of the chest. You have to listen peristernally. And that also being said, you can also induce a murmur if you're pressing too hard. So they are a little trickier than dogs are. You know, dogs, I feel like it's pretty when you hear a murmur, you hear a murmur. It's not like was I pressing too hard on the chest? Was I not listening in the right area? You know, so it's it's. Cats are a little trickier when it comes to that. They are certainly trickier. Now, let's talk about um, maybe one more aspect before we get into our our case base. But let's say that we do have a feline, an older feline that does have a known murmur, but maybe the owners either can't afford to go for an echo um, or that's just not within the the realm of possibility, either where they live, you know, somewhere really remotely. Let's say that we still need to do uh, a procedure um, or some diagnostics, et cetera. When you have these cats that come in that could that do have a murmur, but we haven't fully worked it up, and they are potentially really stressed out, 
Talk to us about some tips that we can minimize stress in these patients because we know that with cats and murmurs, stress can really be the enemy. Yeah. So do you have any advice for uh, the techs listening out there who may have to, you know, restrain and get blood from these animals or potentially, you know, help perform ultrasound on these animals or et cetera? You know, what are some things we can do to minimize stress in the geriatric patient with um potential cardiac disease? I mean, I think we've all really gotten on board with pre-visit anxiolytics. And I think gabapentin prior to a visit is like, is really key for a lot of cats, especially these guys that we're, we don't want to get worked up. You know, keeping them in a quiet room away from dogs is important. Um, you know, we try to use almost almost exclusively IM medications in cats. Like we don't want to stress them out by holding them to get a catheter in. Um, so we definitely turn to, to IM medications very quickly. Like we don't, the last thing you want to do with any cat really is stress them up and get that sympathetic nervous system just out of, you know, going crazy. Um, so definitely pre-visit anxiolytics. I get a pen before the visit. Um, I think most owners are pretty, pretty compliant with that. Yeah, on our end too, um, all the anesthesiologists that I work with are big fans of preemptive gabapentin, at least if they can, if the owners can get it at home. And worst worst case scenario, if they can't, a lot of our anesthesiologists will just pop them with the gabapentin once they enter the door. And then, like you said, let them kind of simmer in a really quiet area. So. When we say quiet area, guys, we we mean like not like the top cage (laughs) in the treatment room with the dog barking and the other dog howling and, you know, all of the stress that goes along with it. If you really can get a a dedicated quiet area or even an exam room that you might not be using that day to have it kind of really calm and as quiet as possible. And I always encourage people to look at things like, you know, low stress handling. Um, I know the... Feline Practitioner's website has a really good course on low-stress handling, also, you know, fear-free techniques, et cetera. Now, Elizabeth, really the meat of why we're, we're here and we're talking today is what do people do when they have this older cat in front of them? And I'm going to give you the case scenario is dentistry because it seems to always be dentistry that we have this older cat, right? It has you know, some kidney insufficiency on its blood work, Uh, maybe not, you know, the worst thing ever, but we know that it has some kidney insufficiency. So we see some evidence of chronic renal failure. Um, The cat needs to come in. It has a really diseased, you know, upper canine tooth, but maybe potentially even more extractions. So if we look at this cat that's, you know, on our schedule, and I'm, I'm using this as an example only because I literally had this cat come into me a couple months ago as a 17-year-old feline that needed to, teeth extracted, and everybody was really nervous because the cat was 17, almost 18, uh, and just the age really kind of kind of made people nervous, that along with elevated kidney values. So let's talk if, you know, because I do think that this is a a scenario that plays out in a lot of veterinary hospitals around the country, around the world. So when we talk about these older felines that have concurrent, you know, mild renal failure, renal disease, what are some things that we need to keep in mind? What are some ways that we can keep those kidneys happy? Walk us through how you would approach this patient, um, even preemptively to drug selection and what monitoring is really going to be important during the anesthetic process? 
Right. So I think, you know, that's definitely one that I would hope that the owners could get some gabapentin into beforehand. So we have a little bit quieter cat to deal with. Um, again, I, especially with these older cats, I think the other thing that people don't really think about a lot is that they most likely have some arthritis, some osteoarthritis. So careful, gentle handling, you know, burrito that burritoing them with a towel. We all know what that is, you know, can really be very gentle for them. Um, I would definitely do IM uh, medication in this cat. If we're thinking about some kidney disease, I would probably avoid ketamine and I would probably avoid dextomator. Um, you know, that's kind of controversial. Some people say low doses are okay. Um, if, you know, if it was just, I would probably avoid those. I would, if you have alfaxin, I would do alfaxin butorphanol. I know butorphanol sometimes can be a little controversial because we don't have the um, it's not a pure mu agonist, obviously, and we, you know, it does, is not good um, analgesia. But if we have time that we can get, you know, some pre-meds into the cat, get an IV catheter into them, then give them some IV pain meds um, prior to the procedure. That's what I would aim for. Um, we don't do things particularly super quick in my hospital. And I don't know how other hospitals, you know, how their flow goes. So that would give me time, you know. As far as under anesthesia, we would want to keep this cat's MAP above 75 to um, optimize our renal perfusion, make sure those kidneys are getting as much, you know, we don't want to starve them of, of blood flow. We don't want our, our MAP to go below 75. So obviously blood pressure monitoring would be very important, you know, and all the other basic monitoring. Uh, you know, I always, I don't, I don't even know if I could work somewhere that didn't have entitled CO2 monitoring anymore oh, and all that same. kind of thing. Um, let's talk, let's talk for a minute though about blood yeah. pressure monitoring, because mm -hmm. I do go into some clinics and I mean, we can see blood pressure monitoring all the way from, we have a Doppler and that's mm -hmm. it to, we have an oscillometric, we have invasive blood pressure. If this cat is coming into your clinic, what, and you are anticipating a couple hours long dentistry. Is there a certain blood pressure monitor or a way to obtain those numbers that you prefer over the other? Personally, I I love invasive blood pressure monitoring. Uh, you know, and no, uh, you know. But that being said, an art line in a cat is not always the easiest thing to do. <laughs> That's an understatement of the world. You know, um, so that can be pretty difficult. Um, Oscillometric is untrustworthy at best. You know, you see one reading is, you know, you have a map of 80, the next reading you have a map of 40, you know, both of them, you know, neither one of them, the heart rate matches. And you're just like, I don't know what to believe. I probably shouldn't believe either one of them. Um, Doppler comes with its own controversies, but can probably, you know, can be the most reliable in a cat. You know, some people say that your Doppler reading is closer to systolic. Some people say it's closer to your mean. So, you know, I think in that case, it's, it's, Doppler is very meaningful for monitoring trends um, and can probably be, and if you're, if you're stuck between oscillometric and Doppler, you know, I think Doppler is a little bit more trustworthy, if you will. Um, I mean, we've all seen, we have two different types of oscillometric monitoring at my hospital. We have Cardell and we have Mindray and we can put them on the same, you know, both monitors on the same cat and get vastly different readings at the same time, you know? So it's, it's, Cats are, are tough with that kind of monitoring. Um, we do, if we anticipate a long procedure, um, we do try to get an arterial catheter in. Success rate's probably like, you know, 25 to 50%. It's really rough. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but then you at least know what you're actually dealing with. And then we do like to, or I like to, if I do get invasive monitoring on, I like to keep the oscillometric on them and see how different they are. And it's crazy how different that is. I mean, it really, then you really distrust your oscillometric. 
Yes. So I think if I was stuck between the two and I wasn't getting good readings on the oscillometric, I would go to Doppler. Yeah, that's same. I'm actually one of the weirdos. Um, when I'm when I'm doing relief at uh, University of Pennsylvania, I'm like one of the weirdos. Everybody, I don't know, they don't like the Dopplers. And I like if I have a cat dentistry, and let's say we couldn't get an A line in, um, because as you said, every once in a while, every once in a while, you have those days where you just hit everything, man. Right? Oh, you're yeah. like, yeah, A lines all day. <laughs> let's do it. And then you have this cat that you're like, oh, yeah, I can feel it. And you, it just doesn't go. So that's fine. <laughs> but I actually, in dentistry, cats, I like to have <laughs> an oscillometric on one uh, limb, if possible, mm-hmm. and a Doppler on the other. And I'm constantly you know, going back and forth and yep. like trying to see, do my trends in my Doppler more closely correlate what I am seeing as a systolic or as a mean arterial pressure? And then in conjunction with my anesthesiologist, then, you know, making a decision as to when we intervene and with what methods. So I think that brings up a really good point as far as, you know, um, and like you said, there is some conflicting evidence out there, right? So we have some evidence in some studies saying, yes, your Doppler is more closely correlated to your mean arterial pressure. But then we have other studies that say, yes, your Doppler is more closely correlated to your systolic. So I think really good point that you you don't want to just take a one-off reading. We do want to see like, what are the past three to five readings? What are the trends telling us? And if our patient's going towards hypotensive, uh, then we're going to do something about it. So, and definitely, you know, all the other things like, ECG and end tidal CO2 and our temperature, et cetera. Now let's say for this patient in particular, right? It's a dentistry patient. We're doing um, extraction. So we know that this patient is going to get appropriate local blocks for the extractions. Now, however, maybe despite the local blocks, you are seeing that this patient is becoming hypotensive. And remember, we're dealing with an almost 18-year-old cat, a little bit of kidney disease, you know, no heart disease that we know of. But walk us through kind of what determination you make when to intervene with the blood pressure and kind of like what thought process you're using as to what your actual intervention might be. You know, some people are like, let's go to fluid boluses. And some people are like, hey, now, wait a minute, let's go to pressors. So so what are you guys doing and how do you work, work us through that? I mean, I think that like um... – the most important thing when you're looking at, okay, so I, I knew beforehand I wanted to keep my map above 75. Okay, so my, now my cat's map is is trending lower. So as soon as you're starting to see the trends down, you need to start thinking and looking. So what's my heart rate? Are we bradycardic? Are we tachycardic? So, it, you know, and I think that's like you need to kind of think about, okay, so I know map is cardiac output times systemic vascular resistance. I know cardiac output is heart rate times stroke volume. So if my heart rate in a cat is 90 and I'm hypotensive, I want to fix that heart rate. Like I'm not going to get, that's the first thing that's, and it's, and it's super easy to fix, right? We can give some glyco, we can give some atropine. We always go to glyco at my hospital. But, Same. I'm um, glyco girl yeah. too. And it's, you know, emergency is right. different. Okay, guys, remember, <laughs> yeah, right, right. We're, we're not talking about an anesthetic emergency here. We're talking about, we just need to do something about the bradycardia. So, Yeah. So that's the easy fix, right? Then you look like you look awesome. You get that heart rate up, you get the blood pressure up, you're like, whew, fixed. All right. So now we're looking at this cat and we're not bradycardic. Like let's say our heart rate is 150 and our map is still trending down. So then we start to think, well, at this point, I think I might need a presser. I think I've got some vasodilation. Obviously, we know our inhalants cause vasodilation. Almost all of our, you know, anesthetic drugs cause some vasodilation. 
So I think I'm vasodilated. So then we go to our pressors in these cats. Now we like to use dopamine CRIs. Um, you know, we'll use some other drugs too, like phenylephrine. Um, but dopamine is nice because you can, they can, you know, you can run your CRI, you can adjust it. Um, you know, and it is that caveat though, being that it is a dirty drug. So, you know, at lower doses, you see more beta activity, higher doses, you see more alpha. Um, so, you know, but we do like to go to, to dopamine. Definitely. Yeah. Same. I, I use quite a bit of dopamine. Um, and I think I had said this in like a lecture that I did. I don't know when I did it, it all jumbles together now. Um, but for dentistry cats, I don't know about you. Um, I kind of don't wait, especially if I know it's going to be a longer procedure and an extraction case, I don't wait for them to be hypotensive to then go get my syringe pump and my dopamine and all that. Like, during that prep time where I'm getting all of my supplies together, I just get my syringe with my dopamine dilution already loaded onto it. So that way, when they become hypotensive, right? Not if, but usually when they become hypotensive, (laughs) all I have to do is just turn it on and I don't have to go running for supplies. But I think I think that's the most important thing with anesthesia, though, is when you're looking at your patient and you're like, oh, this one is scaring me a little bit. Then you start to think, okay, so what's scaring me about this patient? What am I worried about? What are my concerns? How do I mitigate those concerns? And I'm going to be ready for whatever comes at me. So that that way, when it happens, I'm not like, oh, no, this happened. Now what do I do? You're like, okay, this thing that I thought was going to happen happened, and I know what I'm going to do. I have my supplies here. They're right here next to me. I don't need to run around. I don't need to ask somebody to go get stuff for me. I have it here. So I think that to me is like, that's the best part about anesthesia to me is like knowing what's wrong with my patient, knowing what my concerns are, being prepared for those things, and then hopefully not having to use any of them. <laughs> yeah, no problem. I, I, I totally agree. It's really just preparedness. And I think that, yeah. you know, a lot of people will sometimes say to me like, well, anesthesia is kind of boring compared to, you know, like ECC or something like that. And I, I tell them that it's true. Like my job as a good anesthesia technician is to make it boring. Like that's my yep. job, right? My job is to prepare, prepare, prepare. So the actual uh, anesthetic event is pretty boring. Um, yeah. And I don't know. I'm, I'm just not one that I don't think my, uh, my old lady heart can, could handle, uh, the excitement of ECC every day, all day anymore. I just, I just can't do that. I need like a nice, you know, I need, and not to say that I don't like the juicy, like, you know, anesthetic cases that are like all this critical stuff, but every once in a while, you know, you just, you just want a like two-year-old Labrador TPLO anesthesia case. You're like, I just, I just need my brain to like, just slow down for a minute. Give me, give me the good one. Um, so let's say, let's say with this cat, right. Um, we are, we're rocking along. We perform the, the extractions. And now for this cat, what are some key things that we want to keep in mind for recovery, uh, of this senior, you know, kidney insufficiency cat? Do you keep them on fluids postoperatively? Are you monitoring any blood pressure postoperatively? Any considerations for temperature, et cetera? I mean, of course, like we've been, I I would hope that we've been monitoring the temp the whole time because you can guarantee that a 17-year-old geriatric kidney disease cat is skinny. Like you can guarantee it. You can guarantee they're going to get cold. So, you know, we definitely want to be monitoring their temperature, keeping them warm, keeping them in a nice, comfortable area post. Um, We would definitely keep them on fluids, make sure we kind of give those kidneys their help afterwards, help flushing out everything, whatnot. Um, And I think like 
to me, I always think about we want to, you know, keep them quiet, calm as as best we can. We don't want these things waking up with barking dogs everywhere and like getting them all scared. And um, we definitely want to keep them as quiet as possible. Assess their pain. Make sure that you know um, that they really are comfortable. You know, you kind of want to actually go in and touch them and touch their little faces and make sure they're not you know pulling away from you. Look at them in the cage. Look how they're sitting. Are they drooling? You know, anything like that. You want to really be keeping a good eye on on how comfortable they really are, you know, um, and addressing that with, you know, I know a lot of places like we use methadone by the bucket full. Um, and I know not everywhere has methadone, but, you know, I, I think you have to use what you have at your hospital. Exactly. Um, you know, I don't think... I personally don't think there's ever black and white in anesthesia or analgesia. And I think you have to use what you have to the best of your ability. So... Um, yeah. And cats can also be very weird with opioids, so <laughs> we all know that. Oh yeah, oh man, yeah, <laughs> we know that. And uh, and I I gotta say, like I, you know, the more that I read and research and understand about buprenorphine, um, yeah. I mean, listen, I like I love methadone in cats, but if you don't have it and you have buprenorphine, you can still get really good pain control with buprenorphine, right? It's, we just want to yep. make sure that the dosing is correct. Uh, and now, you know, for dentistry patients, we have the product uh, Zorbium, which is the transdermal yep. buprenorphine. So if you have that as an option, that's nice too, because then the owners, you know, postoperatively don't have to go into the mouth, you know, where there yeah. essentially is sutures and all that. So definitely, I think that there are, there are a lot of options out there, and you're exactly right in that anesthesia is not one answer or black and white. There are a lot of different ways that we can approach things. And I think especially from, you know, a every clinic is a little bit different, what they have resources. Um, some people may have access to methadone and others not. And that's fine. And we can make sure through a multimodal approach, we get the best experience for that patient. So Elizabeth, just to kind of like close and wrap things up, if a technician sees that they have a 19-year-old cat coming in, you know, this week for dentistry, what are some maybe like key pieces of advice to leave them with? Uh, don't let the age be what scares you about that cat. Let all the other comorbidities be what scares you. Make sure you know what else is going on with that patient. And then, you know, work, know your concerns, know how to manage them, and then, you know, do your best with that cat. But don't let the age alone be what scares you. <laughs> certainly, certainly. So plan, plan, and plan some more, the, the motto yep. of anesthesia. Well, Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining us on the Veterinary Anesthesia Nerds podcast. Uh, and then just last question I have for you, MSU Dairy Store, <gasps> what is your favorite flavor? The mint chocolate chip, one hundred percent. Yeah, you know I'm a black cherry girl. Okay. Oh yeah. And I, will I used to only... get a mint chocolate chip every day to class. I... Going to class, I would get a mint chocolate chip shake. Yes. Oh. <laughs> so for those of you uh, who don't know, who haven't been to Michigan State University's campus, the Michigan State University uh, has what we call a dairy store. And it's like a it has all things dairy. You can go there and buy milk. You could buy cheese. But their ice cream is legendary. And if you ever have the chance to get up to East Lansing, please stop by the MSU Dairy Store. This is the only place in the the only place that I will have black cherry ice cream. It just, it <laughs> tastes fake and weird in any other location. And for some reason, I love it there. But mint chocolate chip is actually my son's favorite flavor when we go. So yeah, yeah the mint chocolate chip also very solid. So definitely can't wait for summer and getting a, getting a cone from the MSU dairy store. I'll be there in August. 
All right. Thank you so much for joining us, Elizabeth. And we hope to have you again on the podcast soon. Thank you. 